Lord, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds to the principles that will help us to be better stewards of what you have given us. Help us to understand who and what we are and what responsibilities you would have us to learn. Amen. We're going to start off with a little bit of a review of last Sunday, and I'm not going to ask you the questions. I'm just going to give you the, the, the review, and I think some of you will be glad I did it this way. But last week, we studied the four foundations of a gospel worldview. Uh, the first foundation was, at the center of the universe is a God of incalculable glory. And life is about God's will, God's purpose, God's pleasure, and God's glory. The second worldview our foundation was we live in a world terribly broken by sin we will fail to properly understand money and the money problems that ensnare us if we ignore or minimize the fact that we live in a world so broken by sin that it does not function in any dimension in the way that God originally intended the third foundation is God offers us his heart and life transforming grace the reality of ever-present grace is so encouraging because our sin isn't just an environmental issue. It is more significantly a matter of the heart. And the fourth foundation is we were created to live for something bigger than ourselves. The pleasure of someone vastly bigger and better was meant to be what would please us most and shape the way we live. Our money was meant to be connected to this bigger thing. Our use of money was to be shaped not just by personal need or pleasure, but more foundationally by transcendental, transcendent realities. Well, that was a mouthful. Uh, and that was uh, uh, Paul Trepp's uh, s s summary that I picked out of the book. Uh, so let's go uh, continue on with today's study, which is about four identities. You can understand money if you you can't understand money if you don't understand who you are, and money is one of the principal ways you demonstrate who you think you are. There is no better indicator of the identity you have assigned to yourself than the way you use money. Why does one person proudly throw money around? Why does another person use her money to buy? all the cultural markers of success. Why is the neighbor of yours so proudly vocal about his charity? Why has yet another person been able to stay out of debt? And why does that couple quietly give away such a big portion of their income? Why is your friend so gripped with money fears? Why does she struggle with envy and embarrassment whenever she is around her wealthy friends? Why does he try to hide the fact he grew up in poverty? Why did Jesus talk about this topic more than any other? Why is money such a big deal? Why are some of us never satisfied even though we have so much money? And why are some of us content with so little? <coughs> I trust that today's um, study will help answer some of these questions. Uh, let's start by reading about the creature identity that we have. Uh, point one, creature. 
Being a creature means that when it comes to money, you and I weren't designed to find our own way, to make it up as we go along, or to write our own set of rules. In fact, being a creature means that we have no ability to understand anything fully and correctly without the essential help of God's revelation. Being a creature means looking to the creator to understand the meaning, purpose, and danger of anything. We cannot understand the reason for and the purpose of and the proper use of money apart from God's wise counsel, any more than Adam and Eve could have understood God's plan for them in the garden without God lovingly explaining it to them. God made you, God made the world you live in, and the very concept of valuables, currency, and how we are to relate to them came out of the mind of God. Money really is one of the most frequent and powerful ways that you demonstrate who you think you are. Your use of money really does depict your sense of identity. And if you are carrying the identity of a creature around with you, you know that you have been called to surrender all your understanding of money and your use of it to the wise counsel and purpose of your creator. To use money however you want to use it, to get whatever pleases you, is a denial of your identity as a creature of God. How does your use of, use of money portray who you think you are? And that requires an answer. <laughs> how, do, how does your use of money portray who you think you are? Sometimes it, it shows that uh, I'm pretty selfish. <laughs> right here. Steve. Uh, for me, I think of uh, when Jesus teaches where your treasure is or your heart will be. And so I think money is a way we gain things. So whatever we treasure, that shows our heart. So if we're using our money for things that are wicked, then that means our heart's wicked. And vice versa with if we do things that are good with our money. So. Okay, let's move on with the next one. It's uh, entitled Sinner. Okay. It's sad to have to say this, but none of us uh, is okay. We are all broken, still in need of the further work of redemption. When it comes to money, to acknowledge that we are sinners immediately confronts us with the fact that we need more than a food accountant and a wise budget. If wise life strategies were all we needed, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus wouldn't have been necessary. Psalm 51 is an incredible is incredibly helpful. Sinners need more than education. They need more than practical life strategies. They need more than external restraints on their behavior. Sinners live in desperate need of mercy. They will only ever be what they were designed to be and to do what they were designed to do when they have been blessed with the rescuing, forgiving, empowering, transforming, and delivering mercies of the Savior. Our money dysfunction requires more than usable strategies for controlling expenditures and increasing income. You come to understand this when you consider what David reflects in his confession. David understands that his problem isn't his eyes, or that beautiful women exist in the world, or that he lives near such a woman as Bathsheba. His problem is sin. 
He has come to understand that something inside him caused him to be susceptible to dark, wrong, immoral, selfish, and dangerous things. He had come to the awareness that the sin inside him could make him look at what God clearly says is ugly and see something magnetic and attractive instead. He had come to confess that bad things had so powerfully come to look like good things that he had quit caring about who he was and about what God said he should do. His confession clearly says that what he did was not the result of poor education or a bad environment, but the result of a dark force living inside him. And uh, so I want to be sure to look up uh, Psalm 51.5 while she's reading. So wait, am I reading Psalm 51.5? No, no, no. You, that comes down oh. to, to the short paragraphs later. Gotcha. Okay. Sin renders us unable to live up to God's design and according to his will. Sin makes us weak, easily susceptible, and all too frequently defeated. Sin causes us not only to fail to live up to God's standard. Sadly, we also seldom consistently live up to our own standards. That's where David goes next. He humbly acknowledges the reality that at the, at the root of every wrong he has done is something that he was born with. Psalm 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And someone will have to need to uh, read 51.6 after this next paragraph. One more game-changing observation from David's prayer of confession is vital. In acknowledging that he is a sinner, David confesses that the only hope for him is heart change. As with all other sins, adultery is first a matter of thoughts and desires of the heart before it is a matter of specific choices and behavior that take you beyond God's moral boundaries. You do it with money. Money problems aren't first problems of the luxurious mall or the wallet full of credit cards or a small paycheck or too many clothes or an all-too-luxurious car or lavish vacations. You can be poor and have deeply spiritual money issues. Money problems are heart problems. They are always about the cravings that rule your heart. They are always about what you are really living for. They are always about what you think will make you happy. At some level, they are always about the real objects of worship in your heart. Psalm 51.6 Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So the only hope for us is the thing David asks. For in one of the most well-known prayers in all the scriptures, create in me a clean heart, verse 10. It is a cry for something David has no power whatsoever to produce in himself. Radical, long-lasting heart transformation, and it is a reason for the bright promise of the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, I will put within you, you and I will never grow in our money's lives if we fail to address the deeper issue of the heart. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. Yes, read uh, Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, please. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
Remember, sin is always a matter of the heart before it is a matter of our decisions, investments, and spending behavior. Where does your use of money expose the need of a heart change? Perhaps your suffering is poverty. You've just never seemed to have enough money. Oh, pardon me. Okay, sorry. It may seem as if this third identity has nothing at all to do with the issue of money, but it does. Romans 8, 18 to 23 makes very clear that we live in a terribly broken period. Paul says that there is that the whole world is groaning as we wait eagerly for redemption. It's a provocative phrase. <clears throat> you groan when you're in pain. You groan when you're discouraged. You groan when you're overwhelmed. And you groan when you're suffering. Every day you awake to a world that is broken and groaning. And nothing in your life will escape this brokenness. This means that if you're not suffering now, you're near someone who is. And if you're not suffering now, you will someday. Because of the brokenness of this world... It is impossible for your conception of money not to be shaped by your identity as a sufferer. Perhaps your suffering is poverty. You just never seem to have enough money to pay for the bare necessities of life. There are huge temptations for the poor. One is that you begin to think of money as your own personal savior. That is the thing that would deliver abundant life to you, rather than Jesus himself. See John 10.10. 10. Maybe you've suffered poor modeling. Perhaps you've lived with parents who never budgeted and were always in a cash bind. Perhaps you were never taught how to handle money, how to design a workable budget, and the importance of knowing the difference between wants and needs when you're spending. Maybe your story is physical sickness that has wrecked your finances and or removed your ability to work. Here's how suffering collides with your financial life. If suffering produces a vertical cynicism in you, if it causes you to doubt God's presence and promises, and if you no longer believe at street level that you can rest in his care, then you will be very tempted to take your life into your own hands and to write your own rules. Taking your life in your own hands is essentially telling yourself that you are smarter than God, and telling yourself that you're smarter than God is never a pathway to money, peace, and sanity. In fact, taking your life into your own hands is always a recipe for adding additional trouble to the trouble that you've already suffered. It is vital to remember that sin first infected this world because a husband and a wife questioned God's wisdom, thought they knew better, and took their lives into their own hands. Someone please look up Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, and then Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And then we'll, after, after this next paragraph... Every sufferer needs to run toward the comfort of knowing that the one who rules over all things is a fellow sufferer. He was tempted in all the same ways that you are. He understands the damage that suffering does. 
He is sympathetic to your situation, and he offers you mercies that are form-fit for your individual need. And it really is true that he exercises his sovereign power for your good even in those moments when what you're doing, what you're going through doesn't seem good at all. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to feel disliked and cast out. He knows what it's like to suffer injustice. He knows what it's like to be forsaken and betrayed by one's closest companions. So in your travail, he doesn't look down on you. He will never mock you in your moment of need, and he doesn't condemn you. No, he enters into your suffering with patient grace, faithful love, and life-altering wisdom. In your money suffering, run to your suffering Savior. Hebrews 4.14 Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed under the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ephesians 1.15 Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is the body the fullness of him that fills in all in all some of these questions I'm asking are really uh, piercing heart, people's hearts including mine Here, here's an, an, the next one is where is there evidence in your use of money that you've doubted the goodness and wisdom of God and taking your money life into your own hands I'm going to answer this question from a personal level, uh, and that's uh, there have been many times when I've uh, made decisions that were not the right decisions, and one of them happened to be with uh, timeshares. And uh, I'm sure some other of you made that wrong decision as well, but that was one of the worst financial decisions I think I've ever made. And uh, now it's your turn. <laughs> No, oh no! It's just that uh, there's no end to them. You, you, you're stuck with them forever. <laughs> okay, but if you had the discipline, okay, to to um, carry that out spiritually, yeah, you're used to time, that would help. 
Well, no, the, the problem with the timeshares is the fact that uh, there's no way out. Uh, you can't sell them. You can't give them away. And so you're stuck with them when you really can't afford them anymore. Uh, by the way, I've uh, gotten out of three timeshares. Okay. So what I hear you say, Paul, is in your situation, you had too many, and they were didn't, did not allow you the flexibility when the, the highs and lows came. Yeah. So maybe if you had one, what, I think what Gary's trying to get at is that they're not inherently evil. Well, that's they, can true. Be a, they can be a blessing. And, but you have to be aware of it and make sure that you make wise decisions because they are so difficult to end in the event you choose to end them or need to because your lifestyle has changed or you no longer have the income. That's good. I can tell you that uh, uh, my wife uh, still to this day has this bad memory of me purchasing. I had to have when we went and we finally said we're going to be the soccer mom and dad, we had to get a brand new red uh, van in my opinion. And so uh, this is the first time in my life we ever got upside down in a vehicle because after a year we had another child and that van was no longer big enough. So now I had to take the debt of that new purchase and put it into the next size vehicle. So certainly I didn't need a brand new bright red. Uh, everyone else was going with the Dodge Caravan and I had to have one. So yeah, definitely my heart was wicked on that one. Well, my uh, a closet is littered with red bands that, that, <laughs> that fit in a closet of stuff I have bought. I knew I needed it, and like a kid, you know, like a three days later, it's in my closet. I don't use it at all. Let's move on. Okay. I think most of you are unaware that St. Paul was going to be here today to facilitate the study. The, the following section talks a lot about me, and I'm pretty sure about you, as have the other sections of today's study. Let's start reading in uh, section four there, whoever's next. The word, the word saint wonderfully captures this fourth piece of your identity, but modern usage has lost the original intent of its meaning. Most people who hear the word saint think of someone like Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., and then respond, I'll never be one of those. Saint in the Bible does not connote someone who has reached a nearly divine level of character and influence. Saint isn't shorthand for a forever revered Christian hero. We need to reclaim the word saint. In the Bible, uh, saint is shorthand for those who have been rescued, redeemed, and forgiven, and are being restored by the grace that is theirs because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, by biblical definition, all true believers in Jesus Christ are saints. This means that you have the full right and privilege of approaching your money as a saint. Remember, saints aren't perfect. They're simply those who have been redeemed. No saint has ever been so righteous as to earn God's love. No saint has reached such perfection of character that he has no more need of God's forgiveness. No saint will ever be with God in entirety on the basis of his own merit. Saints do dumb things. 
Saints step over God's boundaries. Saints say they believe, but then don't live as they as though they do. Saints fall into thinking that they're smarter than God. Saints live in moments where they're tempted to question God's goodness. Saints go through days filled with more self-awareness than God's awareness or God awareness. Saints sometimes give into temptation, sometimes lose their way, and sometimes forget who they are as the children of God. Saints sometimes pile up debt, saints sometimes make money messes, and sometimes take their money life into their own hands. You see, the glory of being a saint is not what you have done or are doing, but what God has done and is doing for you. Being a saint means you never carry your money burdens alone. It means that God is with you in every money struggle. Being a saint means you don't have to deny responsibility, shift the blame, run and hide, or be paralyzed with guilt when you've made a money mess. In your darkest moment of money foolishness, you can run into God's presence, assured of his forgiveness and help. Being a saint means God has opened your heart to his existence and your mind is to his wisdom. You are now blessed with knowing that at its very core, your life isn't about your comfort, pleasure, and satisfaction, but about his glory. Being a saint means your eyes have been opened to the fact that the deepest longing of your heart will never be satisfied by something you can buy with your money. Being a saint means you have to come to know that money that can't buy happiness and that it will never be your personal savior. But there is more. Being a saint welcomes you out of the fear of honest self self-examination because you know that everything that could ever be known about you has been fully covered by the blood of Jesus. You can rest assured knowing that all of your money sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven. And you can know and you can go to sleep each night knowing that there is simply no money trouble that lives beyond the reach of the power of God's amazing grace. The primary hope of every saint is that God's grace and wisdom bless you with the promise of fresh starts and new beginnings. Your money problems aren't the end of your personal story. Your money, is, your money future is not determined by the level of your discipline, insight, and ingenuity alone, because God blesses you every day with his infinite wisdom and limitless power. As one of God's saints, when it comes to money, you are not helpless, hopeless or helpless because the author of reliable hope and the source of true help is now your father. So, saint, so saints commit themselves to using their money according to God's purpose and for his glory. But when they don't, they, they do not give way to humiliation, desperation, and personal recrimination. Instead, with hope and courage, they get up, dust themselves off, seek God's forgiveness, rescue and empowerment, and determine to grow in their commitment to live with their m money God's way. Why is that true? Hmm. Bruised knees. Well, the question now is, how, has your money life been shaped by the blessing of knowing you're one of God's saints? Yes, and I think that improves as my your sanctification. 
Christian process improves and I get closer to the Lord, I understand that it all belongs to him in the first place. I'm a steward of it. I have a, a responsibility to take care of what he gives me, both financially and family-wise and just stuff-wise, okay? And as I grow in Christ, then I, my understanding of my responsibility and, and how to handle the resources he gives me grows as well. Also, as you grow as a saint in your sanctification process, the things of this world grow dim. So things that um, 20 years ago I would have really wanted now just don't seem even appealing. So um, the world just becomes dim. That takes a lot of sanctification, though. Because <laughs> I'm almost 70. world wants to hang on, that's for sure. We can go down to the re review and reflect questions next. Uh, Paul Tripp writes that there is no better indicator of the identity you have sign assigned to yourself the way you use your money. What do, you sp do your spending habits reveal about how you view yourself? I think we kind of dealt with that one. Maybe I'm wrong. Did you? Um, I, I had the blessing of, <clears throat> excuse me, my parents going through uh, Dave Ramsey um, when I was in like elementary school, junior high age, and um, I wanted to go all the classes with them. I thought it was interesting, and so I grew up with that. Then I graduated college, went right into um, giving financial advice, being a financial advisor, and then I moved to a fin financial company. Um, so I, on, on my most sinful moments, I'm like, I got this down. Like, I understand money. I have understand the relationship of debt from the beginning. My 401k is going to be healthy. I'm, I have nothing to worry about. And um, it's, it's this, uh, the dependence on God is not there often. Like, it is a, well, historically since 1929, the stock market has returned 7.2%. So um, then on average, as long as I wait over 10 years, like, that's what's going through my head consistently of financial planning, all of that. Never is it you know, praying, Lord, hey, give me what I need, whether that's through um, savings or through retirement or paying down mortgage or those things over time. It, I, you start to trust the mechanisms of money of the world more than you trust God caring about your well-being. Um, and you see it just as a tool and something to be manipulated. Um, and, so, um, and so I think for me consistently, that's one of those things where even if you're doing the exact right behavior, like what I would encourage someone who is trying to be, get in a more financially sound place and hasn't saved for retirement, you know, just starting, that can be a good thing. But I know for me, my faith is in the U.S. economy over the long run and in the, uh, my ability to earn an income and continue to contribute a certain percentage of that income and not in God um, in many moments, which is absolutely wrong. I mean, it's a bunch of digital numbers on a computer somewhere and the moment they hit zero like I still got to eat so um, anyway it's just I'm kind of reflecting on this because some of this 
Um, some of this has not been my experience that's being talked about, but yet it, it just really doesn't matter your financial situation. Your heart can be completely wrong about all of it. And mine is daily about money because I, you know, you think of it as something you control, not God controlling. Yeah. I had the uh, benefit of a father who was very financially savvy. And he didn't sit me down and teach me a class, but he uh, showed me what, what it was like to live by the financial uh, principles that are in, in God's word. And I learned from him and it, as I was growing up and didn't make some of the same mistakes that a lot of others have made. I never uh, had more than $2,500 on a credit card. And then I got was convicted that I sh shouldn't have that. And now, now I work on the basis of whatever I put on my credit card gets paid off at the end of the month. Or like Dave Ramsey would say, if you can't do that, you cut up your card. And uh, some people would find that very hard to do, cutting up your card. But in order to join his course, you have to charge on a credit card. No, you have to do a credit card and it didn't cut it up. Thankfully, my parents paid for it, so it's their problem. Does anyone else have something to add to our discussion? Over there. Nick? Sorry about that. Just, uh, just a quick comment. I, um, I just finished reading Job recently again, and um, as we were talking and, and just kind of reflecting on what, what PJ said, I was just thinking that I am so, um, you know, as, Amer as Americans, we, we're, we're all about outcomes, right? And, and, and at the same time, you know, the, the lesson, one of the lessons I got out of Job was that, you know, I need to live life with an open hand, recognizing that it all comes from God and it's all his. And um, so that's just, that was just something that I, I was realizing just recently. First of all, I want to affirm all that PJ said. I think that was wonderful and, and humble for you to share those things. Um, I thought I'd just kind of add something in that he didn't say that, but I think he would agree with, and I'll let him you know, have the freedom to decide that afterward. Um, uh, so it's true that, you know, our, our trust must be in God and what he, what he does and what he leads us to do. Um, but yet he has created, um, he's created all things. So he has put things in motion to create this uh, amazing capital, capitalistic American economy that we have. And so to, uh, God uses those things. You know, God uses those things to uh, to bless people, and, and um, uh, it's not wrong for us to work in a financial institution that that uses those things. You know, as we consult God, right, and as we um, as we put our trust in Him and and follow Him to provide for all things. Um, I think it's a matter of where is your trust, right? Um, and uh, any thoughts on that, PJ? I agree. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, just thought I'd add that. Yeah, I think I, th I completely agree. I think the same dollar, 
10 different people holding a dollar bill, one can honor God and the nine others, you know, have nine different thoughts and could be sinning in different ways with the dollar bills. And so I don't regret having been taught financial sound things. I regret when I don't realize it's a gift from God. I was just going to say in this world that we live in and also under the influence of the world of flesh and the devil continuing influence, there's always a constant battle to um, make sure that our identity as believers certainly is in Christ rather than in things, which is what most of the world would pursue. And so that is a, a lifelong battle. I mean, it's certainly a battle that I struggle with. It's a battle that I will till the Lord brings me home. But in the midst of that, also, um, we need to we may consider how um, giving our God is to us and that, you know, he gave his son, he gave everything for us to pay the penalty for our sins. That should cause uh, a desire to be generous, to be giving, to well up in our hearts, to give back to him out of gratitude, out of uh, gratitude for what he has been so gracious to give to us. And so, no, we, I've always tried to be generous knowing that I can never outgive God, <laughs> but, and not being generous to try to receive more back from God, but just to be generous because I realize, as has been stated a number of times, everything that I have is from him and from his gracious hand, and I, out of gratitude, desire to give back to him, and that includes giving back to his work, helping others when I have opportunities like, or, and, that come up across my path or things like that, and also as an act of worship. Paul, can I make a, an observation? Sure. Uh, he did something in rolling out the identity in the nu numeric order that he did. If you look, um, the creature, in biblical counseling, you don't use that as much, but you use the three S's, sinner, suffer, saint. And if, we, if you remember them in that order or you think of your identity through that lens, that progressive lens, it will keep you humble. So he rolled it out as a way of humility, but it's not, it doesn't always stay in that. When we go and we approach somebody, let's stay on the topic of money, that is dealing with a money problem, we need to ask ourselves, are we going seeing them through the lens of sinner, sufferer, or saint? How are we going to interact with them? What, what lens are we primarily using so that we don't go, you know, they're a sufferer and we want to tell them how much they're a sinner. Do you hear how that, that doesn't work so well? So as you see this, I, the, uh, he's, he's, the messaging isn't in the money. You know, it's, you know, in, in material things. Are, and he gives us the four identities, including the creature on top of the three S's. But we, we need to remember that those are who we are. And you might even ask yourself, in this moment of anxiousness, in this moment of difficulty, what lens am I seeing my problem through? And what do I need to be reminded of and seeing it through as well? Does that help? Okay. Does anyone else have something they want to add today? Well, next uh, week, <clears throat> well, next two weeks, I've divided chapter three into a two-week study. And it, as a homework assignment, I want you to read Genesis chapter 3 this week.
And if you don't know off the top of your head what that, that's about, that's about Adam and Eve. Never in my life had I ever thought of that scripture being used as the basis for how you handle money, but it does. And we will cover that over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm going to close now in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, help us to apply what you have taught us today. May our daily money habits be shaped by a clear understanding of the four identities Scripture assigns to us, creature, sinner, sufferer, and saint, that we carry with us into every money moment of our life. I ask this in the name of the above every name, Jesus.